And if you would, open up with me to our sermon text, which does come again, again today from the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19. This is one of the shorter passages we'll, we'll have of our whole study in 1 Kings, just three verses today. 1 Kings 19, verses 19 through 21. So hear now the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I've done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you once again this morning for your word to us. Lord, we thank you for all that we have seen so far in this study through the book of First Kings. And Lord, as we come to another transition passage in the books of First and Second Kings, we pray that you would meet with us today, especially Lord, even as this event was occurring thousands of years ago, you knew that we would be here in this place, sitting at the foot of these exact verses, learning from this exact event. So Lord, we pray that through the power of your spirit, you would produce in us the good works you intended this to produce even thousands of years ago. So Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand all that you have for us today. And we pray it in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as I, I just prayed there, our passage we have this morning is a bit of a transition passage in the grand scheme of the books of First and Second Kings. There have been a few of these already, but this really is the next one in our study through these two books. We are gonna see this morning, Elijah literally passing the mantle from himself to Elisha. And from this point forward, over the next few chapters, we are gonna see Elijah begin to decrease so that then Elisha will begin to increase. And I will say that as we look at our passage this morning, there are two very different approaches we could take to preaching through this text. On the one hand, what we see in these three verses this morning is something incredibly unique in the history of God's people. The transition from Elijah to Elisha is a very unique moment in the history of God's people. It has major implications for the overall working of God in the history of his people. So there is something in our passage today that is totally unique and we need to see that. And yet at the same time, there is something very ordinary about our passage today too. Something that we need to see in the text that has implications on the life of every single Christian, man or woman, whatever our calling might be. There are implications to how we respond to the Lord's callings in our life. So textually, there could be two major approaches we could take this morning, right? 
on the one hand, it would be to focus on the incredible uniqueness of this scene. And on the other hand, it would be to focus on the incredible ordinariness, you might say, of this scene. Two approaches, both right, but both very different things to consider. And as y'all could probably already tell in the way I'm doing this introduction, we are gonna try and do both this morning, okay? Now I know that's a little bit ambitious, but you really would say this is one coin with two sides. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. That's how we're gonna break up our sermon today. We wanna see both sides of this same coin. We need to see how this scene is unique and how this scene is ordinary. We need to see how this scene points us uniquely to a very big aspect of Jesus Christ. And also how this scene informs us of the calling that God has on every single believer's life, whether you are the oldest believer on earth or the youngest believer on earth. This has an implication on the calling for your lives too, children, here today. So our two main points this morning are simply going to be these two aspects of how we watch the scene play out. Okay, so two main points. Point number one, the call of Elisha is a unique call in the history of God's people. The call of Elisha is a unique call in the history of God's people. And y'all could probably already come up with the second point. Point number two, the call of Elisha is an ordinary call in the history of God's people. The call of Elisha is an ordinary call in the history of God's people. So point number one, the call of Elisha is a unique call in the history of God's people. So let me start right here and ask the question, have any of us living today received a call exactly like what Elisha receives in our passage? And the answer is no, right? There is some aspect of our passage today that none of us have received. There's something very unique going on here. In many ways, this is a very unique moment in the history of God's people. So that's what we wanna look at first. So look back with me at verse 19. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Okay, so big picture. What is this passage telling us about? What we see in this verse? Well, we see Elijah passing the mantle from himself to Elisha. And actually that is literally how one of the old English translations puts this verse. If any of you are reading from the King James Version this morning, this is what your translation reads. The end of the King James Version of this verse says, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. You see, that is the old way of saying to throw your cloak upon someone. But there actually is a major English expression that comes from this very verse, from the way the King James Version historically translated this. Philip Ryken says, the expression wearing someone's mantle comes from this passage. By casting his mantle over Elisha, Elijah was now designating the younger man as his successor. The mantle invested Elisha with all the spiritual authority that went with the office of prophet. So y'all, the modern phrase, if you ever hear it like passing the mantle, it comes from 
1 Kings 19, verse 19 in the King James Version. And that phrase has now come to mean something in our modern day as to transfer authority to the next in line, all right? To cast the mantle is to transfer authority to the next in line. And big picture, that's what we have going on in verse 19. There is the very clear transfer of authority, spiritual authority in this verse from Elijah to Elisha. And that means that all God called Elijah to do in part was to prepare the way for Elisha to take the mantle and now advance God's plans forward. So that's what we see in verse 19, which I think is fairly straightforward. But in the grand scheme of scripture, y'all, this is just the tip of the iceberg, all right? You see, there was another major transfer of power and authority prior to the transfer from Elijah to Elisha. And we see that in Numbers 27. And some of y'all were in our Tuesday night Bible study when we were teaching through Numbers. Some of you youth were in Village Youth when we did Numbers 27. And that is another scene that is reminiscent, or this scene is reminiscent of that scene. Back in Numbers 27, the setting there is Israel is in the wilderness. All right, and if you're not familiar with the story, Israel has been brought out of Egypt, right? With the 10 plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea. They receive the law at Mount Sinai. They go into the wilderness. They rebel against the Lord. So they have a punishment of 40 years wandering in the wilderness until that first generation dies off. So Numbers 27 picks up with that first generation having died off and the second generation is getting ready to enter the promised land. But of course, y'all may know, Moses will not be the man to do it. So here now, Numbers 27, beginning in verse 15. Then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, you are the God who gives breath to all creatures. Please anoint, appoint a new man as leader for the community. Give them someone who will guide them wherever they go and will lead them into battle. So the community of the Lord will not be like sheep without a shepherd. The Lord replied, take Joshua, son of Nun, who has the spirit in him and lay your hands on him. Present him to Eliezer, the priest, before the whole community and publicly commission him to lead the people. Transfer some of your authority to him so the whole community of Israel will obey him. Then skipping down a bit, verse 22. So Moses did as the Lord commanded. He presented Joshua to Eliezer the priest and to the whole community. Moses laid his hands on him and commissioned him to lead the people just as the Lord commanded through Moses. Okay, now this is not a, pas a sermon about that passage, but I wanted to read it because it is deeply connected to our passage here today. You see, in both passages, we see a transfer of power, a transfer of authority. But we see also in both of these passages, a connection between the successors, between Joshua and Elisha. So stick with me here for just a minute because this is very important. We have noted a few times in our sermon series the last couple of months, how Elijah is in many ways a second Moses right? Moses showed up in Egypt as the main human through whom God displayed a great victory over the false gods of Egypt. Likewise, Elijah shows up 
as the main human through whom God displayed a great victory over the false gods in the northern kingdom. Just as Moses received the covenant on Mount Sinai, we now have seen Elijah bring charges against God's people for breaking that covenant on Mount Sinai, which was our sermon last time. Elijah will, of course, never die. And we see the archangel Michael argued over with Satan himself in some way over the body of Moses, right? And the connections go on and on and on. So you see Moses and Elijah, scripturally, when we read this, they are intimately connected in their ministries. By the way, who do we see on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, right? Moses and Elijah. So these two are intimately connected in their ministries. And that carries forward quite obviously to John the Baptist who comes in the spirit of Elijah, which we saw back on Christmas Eve. So if you wanna go back and listen to that sermon, that would be helpful there. So we should never miss the fact that in the scriptures, there is this deep connection between Moses, Elijah, and John. These three men who have essential callings to make paths straight, whether it's a straight path through the Red Sea, a straight path on top of Mount Carmel, or a straight path in the wilderness at the onset of Jesus's ministry. And if y'all been around this sermon series for a while, you've heard these things, right? This is just part of what we've seen in the book of 1 Kings. But I say it today because the focus now is turning. The focus is not now on Moses, Elijah, and John. No, the focus now is on their successors. We are reading a passage today all about the passing of the mantle from one great man to the next. Numbers 27, it was Moses to Joshua. And 1 Kings 19, it is Elijah to Elisha. And by the way, this is clear too with their names. We said this at the end of our last sermon, didn't we? What does the name Joshua mean? It means the Lord saves. What does the name Elisha mean? It means God saves. What does the name Jesus mean? It means the Lord saves. So the picture we have is a unique one. Just as Elijah is a second Moses and a precursor to John, Elisha is a second Joshua and a precursor to Jesus in many ways. Now, don't hear me wrong. Elisha is not Jesus. He is not perfect. He is not sinless. He is not our savior, but his ministry is essential to understanding what Jesus will come to do. His ministry is essential to unpacking all that we see Jesus do when he comes into the world. That is the unique aspect of our passage here today. That is the one thing we can't miss when we study these verses. So our first point today is just simply this, the call of Elisha is a unique call in the history of God's people. There is something unique and honestly incredible about this transfer of spiritual authority from Elisha to Elisha, from Elijah to Elisha. I'll make that mistake a few times probably. It's going to continue actually in many ways in the weeks to come as we are going to see Elijah begin to decrease so that Elisha can begin to increase. So prepare yourself for where we're getting ready to go. But today, just notice this transfer has now happened. The era of God saving his people once again has come in the person of Elisha. 
just like the era of God saving his people from now until the second coming has arrived in the person of Jesus. Okay, so keep that in mind. Point number one, the call of Elisha is a unique call in the history of God's people. But that doesn't mean there aren't important implications for us. Okay, so that's our second point this morning. Point number two, the call of Elisha is an ordinary call in the history of God's people. Now, when I say this, it doesn't undermine what Elisha is really called to. All right, all of us have been called to different things. All of us have some overlap in our callings, don't we? Every husband in here has an overlap in our calling, but every husband in here has a uniqueness because we're all married to a different unique individual, right? So there's uniqueness and ordinariness in the sense of all the callings that we have as Christians. But what I mean here is that the response Elisha has to his unique calling is the type of response all of us should have to our unique callings. And that's where this is ordinary for us today. So let's look back at the text. First, verse 20. And maybe this is confusing for you. We're gonna unpack this in a moment. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye. And then I will go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. Okay, so two big things to notice here. First, notice that in this text, Elisha is depicted to us as a wealthy man. Now, I missed this the first time I read through this, but look at what we see about Elisha. He is in a family that has 12 teams of oxen and a large enough field that needs to be plowed. I like the way Philip Ryken puts this. He says the implication is that all these oxen belong to Elisha or perhaps his father. So needless to say, a farmer who needs a dozen tractors has a big piece of land. At the very least, Elisha was a wealthy man. He was set for life with 24 oxen in the family stables and 11 servants to help drive them. Elisha was more than a farmhand. He was an heir to a country estate. Now, doesn't that change the way you read this text? And that changed the way you think about Elisha. Here is a man who was, humanly speaking, set for life. He has everything he needs to guarantee himself, humanly speaking, security and comfort, provision for years to come. That is the state of Elisha's life before Elijah arrives on the scene. This is, in many ways, a rich young ruler. And in the New Testament, we see a rich young ruler walk away from Jesus saddened because he would not give up his possessions. But that isn't the case for Elisha here. Because Elisha, when, because when Elijah places his mantle upon Elisha, Elisha knows what that means. And his response is significant. It is important. It is the type of response we all should have, but it's probably a little confusing when we first read it. So that's the other thing to notice here. Elisha says, first, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. All right, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is this a good response or a bad response? Well, if you're familiar with the scriptures, something's probably going off in your mind right now. Luke chapter nine. So let me read Luke nine, because I want us to all be on the same page here. 
This is Jesus here. Jesus said to another person, come, follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, so we get there, a response from Jesus calling a first person to follow him and that person wants to go and bury his father and he does not permit that to happen. And then Jesus gives a strong warning to the man who wants to go say goodbye to his family. Yet here, Elisha says he needs to go home and kiss his father and mother goodbye and he is not condemned for that. In fact, you could also translate Elijah's response as, go on back, I've done nothing to stop you. Okay, that's also a way some of your translations may actually read. So the question is, what is the difference? Why is Elisha not condemned when it looks very similar to what Jesus condemns or warns against in Luke 9? The answer, I think Dale Ralph Davis sums up perfectly. So I'm just gonna read his because he says it so much more succinctly than me. In Luke 9, saying goodbye is an obstacle for kingdom commitment. Whereas in 1 Kings 19, it functions as his entry into kingdom service, all right? Elisha goes back to sever his connections, not to delay his commitment. He does not return to hold back, but to cut loose. You see, that's the picture we have in 1 Kings 19. Elisha is not going back as a way of delaying his commitment. He's actually going back to speed up his commitment. He is actually going back to sever his ties, to give up his claim on all of that wealth and comfort we saw in verse 19. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 21. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. So what does Elisha do when he returns home? Is he returning home to delay his commitment? Is he returning home as a way of just, of just saying, well, I, I wanna do that, but just not yet. Let me hold on to this comfort that I have for a little while longer. No, he goes home, he slaughters the oxen, he breaks apart his plow, he uses the wood for a fire, and the oxen become an entire community feast. Here is this wealthy man making a very public break with all of the ties that had bound him in order to accept an unhindered call to go and serve Elijah at this point. You see, he literally takes his earthly plow and he breaks it in order to put his hands to the spiritual plow in order that he may never be able to turn back to what he has now severed ties from again. And I think that's actually the point Jesus is making in Luke 9, right? It's interesting Jesus gives the example he gives to the second man, doesn't he? He says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow but looks back isn't fit for the kingdom. Well, why would Jesus use that metaphor, that example? I think it's because he's reminding us of this text. He is pointing us back to this very text. He is reminding us of what Elisha did in completely tearing apart his earthly plow 
in order to break ties with it and go forward with the spiritual plow in serving the call God has given him in an unhindered way. And so as just a side note here, let me ask all of y'all here this morning, what ties that bound you in life before you really turned to Jesus, did you sever when you were called to love and serve the Lord? Think back, what ties that bound you to that former life have you severed in order to love and serve the Lord? What things that hindered you before committing your life to Christ did you break ties with in order to be faithful to Him? And perhaps more pointedly for today, what ties do you still need to break? in order to give a more faithful and unhindered service to the Lord. I'll put it to you this way. What things right now consume your energy, your time, your money, and your affections that need to be broken with in order for you to take God's call to love him and serve him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Plenty of things can be fine to have as part of our lives in this world. But we also all have those things in our lives that consume our time, consume our energy, consume our money, consume our affections and our desires. And we need to make a public break with those things, right? Elisha makes a public break, doesn't he? He does this in front of the whole community. He breaks apart the plow, uses it to roast his oxen and serves those oxen to the community. He is making a public break. What things do we need to make public breaks with in order to not ever be tempted to turn back to it in order to love and serve God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? We all have them. And I wanna encourage you to think on that this week. Finally, we see our passage end with this formerly rich and wealthy man, by the way, by the end of the passage, that's the way we describe him, right? He was rich and wealthy in verse 19. And by the end of verse 21, we would say he is formerly rich and wealthy. But notice how this formerly rich and wealthy man is now serving as a mere assistant. He has given up all of the wealth and honor from his homeland, all of the wealth and honor from where he came, in order to take the position of a lowly and humble servant. That is literally the trajectory of Elisha in our passage here today. In these three verses, he goes from a rich and wealthy man in his homeland to giving it all up to become a humble servant by verse 21. We actually find in 2 Kings 3.11 that Elisha then becomes known as the one who poured water on the hands of Elisha. That is where Elisha's service takes him, from a large field with 12 oxen teams to pouring water on the hands of his master. But that is because it will be through him giving up his wealth and splendor and glory to take the position of humble servant that his name will be fulfilled. It will not be through his former glory and wealth in his homeland that God will save his people. It will be through Elisha giving that up to take on the position of humble servant that God will save his people. And you see, this is the very point that draws together this morning the uniqueness and the ordinariness 
of our passage today. This is the key that connects both perspectives into being one coin. It is uniquely true that the pattern Elisha stamps out here is in 1 Kings 19 is going to be fulfilled on a much larger level hundreds of years later. You see, what do we know the story of Jesus Christ to be? Jesus Christ will give up all of the glory and honor and splendor that was his in heaven in order to take on human flesh and become a servant, a slave in this fallen world. And get this, that is because the name Jesus, the Lord saves, is not ultimately fulfilled by him hanging on to his glory and splendor and honor in heaven. It is ultimately fulfilled when he gives that up out of love for the father and out of love for his bride in order to become a slave and then to endure life in this wilderness world so that he could die an atoning death on behalf of all who would trust in him to bring about forgiveness of our sins and secure for us life everlasting. You see, when Jesus hears those would-be followers in Luke 9, balk at the invitation to follow him, on the one hand, he gets it, doesn't he? He gets it. Doesn't it say that he had compassion on the rich young ruler who walked away sad because of his possessions? You see, he gets it. He had to give up all of his glory. He had to make that same decision on a much grander level in order to give up his glory so that his name might be fulfilled, so that the Lord might truly save his people. When Jesus calls you to give up everything to follow him, he's just asking you to do the same thing he's already done. And he can say with confidence and certainty, brother and sister, when I call you to give up everything to follow me, I'm telling you from experience, it is worth it. If it was worth it for Jesus to give up all of his glory and honor and splendor in heaven to become a servant, to become a slave in this fallen world and to suffer the most gruesome death a human has ever endured, not just a a human death on the cross, but a spiritual death for all those who would believe in him. If Jesus did all of that and found it to be worth it because of the glory that was waiting on the other side of it, then y'all, it will be worth it for you too. What do we have to give up in this life that is really all that great? I mean, really. I get that we have things that are important to us in this world and I'm not making light of those things. But when they are measured against what Jesus gave up and what he had to endure, the question stands, what do we have to give up that is really all that great, that is really worth hanging on to so tightly that we won't serve the Lord. Money that we can't take with us when we leave this world, a career or a job that keeps us from our kids just so we feel a little bit of self-importance or make life a little bit more comfortable while we toil away for a few decades, leisure and pleasure that never lives up to the hope that we put in it, power, prestige, and authority that's just going to be given to someone else when we make a misstep. Like really think about it. What do we have in this world that is really so great that we're not willing to give it up? Nothing. That is the point. 
nothing. We should be willing to let go of anything and everything we have in this world for the glory that is set before us in Christ so that we can love and serve God and love and serve his people in the kingdom of God as long as we remain here on earth. Even when we consider our friends, our family, and our children, the irony is that the more we elevate them above our love for God, the more harm we do them. The more we simply entrust them to God and seek to love and serve them, the more we're actually pointing them to the one who can do something in their lives. Because even our friends and our family and our children are not our own, they are the Lord's. So as we finish our passage this morning, I hope you will hold the uniqueness and the ordinariness of our passage today together as two sides of the one coin. See in this passage a pointer to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and all that he gave up to become our savior and to bring about the fulfillment of his name. And by the way, the fulfillment of Elisha and Joshua's name as well. As Moses and Elijah are standing on the Mount of Transfiguration and they see the promise of what their successors' names meant, they get to stand on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and see the one who will bring the full fruition to what that name means, the Lord saves. But also see in this passage, the ordinary calling upon all of our lives to be ready and willing to give up everything in this world to simply love God and serve him faithfully and to love his people and serve them too. And if you have never given your life to Christ, I wanna encourage you today, the mantle is being shared with you right now. It is being placed on your shoulders this very second. The blessing of receiving that mantle and picking it up to love and serve the Lord too is on your very shoulders right now. Do you feel it? So my question then is this, what will you do with it? Will you shrug it off to stay where you are and continue on your own way? Or will you make a public break with all the ties that have bound you, breaking apart your old plow and putting your hands to the spiritual plow, putting your hands to what it means to love and serve the Lord? to cut ties with all the things that have hindered you from loving him and to move forward to the glory that will one day be yours because brother and sister, no matter what you have to give up in this world, on the day Jesus returns, you will say it was worth it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Lord, we thank you in this passage for seeing the precursor to what your son did for us. Lord, it is impossible for us to fully grasp all that Jesus gave up to come to earth, just to come to earth, just to put himself in the place of a slave, of a servant, and then all that he endured when he didn't have to out of his love for you and for us. Lord, we thank you for that. Father, I pray right now that you would 
take all of his work, all that Jesus accomplished, and through the work of your spirit, apply it now and in the years ahead to every soul sitting in this room today. Everyone who will ever listen to this podcast sermon, Lord, that you would apply it to our hearts and souls. Lord, when that mantle comes on our shoulders, the opportunity to make the decision to part ways with our former life and to love and serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Lord, may we do it. Father, I pray right now that whatever places each one of us need to break ties with, help us to do it. Help us to embrace a wholehearted love and service of you and to be content with the position of servant. Lord, your son was content with it and even joyful over it for the glory set before him. Lord, may we too be content and joyful over the glory before us in Christ to come. Lord, make it so in our hearts and souls now. We pray it in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.